Let's pray together. And as we do, I want you to listen to the words of Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15 is a song that Moses and the children of Israel sang after, uh, after God had parted the Red Sea, after they had been delivered safely out of Egypt and, and across as an impossible situation in front of them, but then God made the way where there was no way. And it says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and they said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Are you going to praise him this morning? My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior, and the Lord is his name. It's declaring the exalted nature of our God, that there really is, as we've just sung, no one higher than him. And you know, I was thinking about that, thinking about that passage, and they were celebrating the crossing of the Red Sea, the most awesome and dramatic thing any one of them ever had or, or would witness and it was amazing, and the Psalms refer back to it. The, in the, even in New Testament times, they still think of this incredible crossing. It's the most amazing thing that any one of them could ever have imagined. But you know what we know this morning? We know that our God has done something greater than part the Red Sea for Israel. He's parted and removed the sin of our hearts. He sent his son to the cross. He's paid the price for our sin. He truly, in that greatest and really most dramatic of all ways, made a way where there was no way. He made a way for you to go to heaven. He made a way for us to know him through Jesus Christ. And if you aren't grateful for that this morning, you ought to be. That the most awesome act in all of history has been done for you. We have a God who changes hearts. Amen? And I'm going to pray for us in a moment. I'm going to pray that God would open our hearts, that he would deal with our hearts, not just through a sermon that's preached, but, but as his spirit works, we're going to pray as we always pray. But before we do that, I want you just to, I want to invite you to pray about something with me. And, and, and this isn't at all an intrusion, and interruption. I don't think so at all. I just, God has just really impressed on my heart. This is what we need to do this morning. Some of you may know if you were up early and and on Facebook, there was a bit of an incident here in our neighborhood last night. There was a, a gentleman, uh, and uh, intoxicated, drove his car into the wall of the commons across the street. Um, and, and as I thought about that, to be drunk, to be driving around at three in the morning, to plow your car in a wall, there's a need in his heart that's not satisfied, right? It's because something isn't there that needs to be there. And we know who that something is. It's who it's. It's Jesus. So I'm going to invite you right now where you stand. That man is sitting down the street in the Lynn County Jail. I don't know his name. I don't know his story. I don't know anything about him. But I know that when the people of God prayed in the Bible, God did things for people in prison, right? And so I'm going to ask right now where you are, whether you want to do it silently or aloud, just to pray, just as Missy continues to play for a moment before I pray for us. Let's pray for this man's soul. Let's pray that God would redeem his life from the pit, that God would do a work of salvation within him and that that would spill over into the changing of many other lives. I don't have to tell you how to do that. Would you just pray right now, right where you are, that God would deal with this man. Meet him in that cell. Make it undeniable. Pray for that man. You know, maybe as you pray for him, God brings to mind someone else in a place of desperate need that you know and love this morning. Why not? Let's lift them up as well. Speak their name before the Lord. Lord, would you save? Lord, would you rescue? Lord, would you change the heart of? Who do you know that needs Jesus today? Lift them up before the Lord. Say, Lord, change their heart.
Heavenly Father, we all know that there is no shortage of need in this world. Father, that those who don't know Jesus Christ far outnumber those who do. And Lord, that's a tragedy of infinite and eternal proportions. And it's a tragedy that we want to make a dent in. We want to see you change. Father, you've taught us over the past few years as a church family in little pockets and in different ways, Father, to seek your face for revival. Father, that you would, you would do a work in our church and in our lives and in our city and ultimately in our nation and around our world, a great turning of men and women and children to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, what we've sung, we believe there is no one higher than our God. There is no one greater than you. And there truly is no other name given under heaven by which men and women and children can be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, we want to see the name of Jesus Christ magnified this morning. Father, some of us in this room came ready to do that. We came with expectant open hearts. We were ready to worship, and we're just thrilled to be in the company of brothers and sisters, Lord, and and here to worship and, and hear your word. And Father, some of us aren't. Father, some of us in our heart, we're we're tired, we're indifferent, we're stiff-necked. We're saying, I'm going to gut it out for an hour, but I don't want to be here. And I don't like what's going on. And Father, I can't change that. It's not my job to change it. But you can. Father, you're a warrior. You're a warrior who, in the best of all possible ways, pierces the hardness of human hearts, overcomes the strongholds of rebellion and sin and indifference and pride. Father, you save lost souls. You restore weary believers. Lord, I believe that you want to do all of that and more here today, not just because we come to a place called church, but because you love us with an everlasting love. Father, would you convince those of us here this morning who don't believe in or know of or really trust your love, Father, that your love can be trusted, that your gospel really is good news, that there's no better place to be than in the hands of Jesus. Father, we pray you do a work this morning worthy of your name. Lord, I know I'm not up to that task when it comes to preaching, but we're going to ask that as we look at your word together that you would, in fact, lead us, that you would, in fact, guide us, that you would, in fact, grip us and change us. Father, not for the sake of being able to walk out and say, what a good day we had at church, but for the sake of being able to walk out and say, I met with Jesus today, and I'm so glad that I did. Father, we also recognize this morning we're not the only place where people are gathered for these same reasons. Father, all over our city, as always, on Sunday morning, there are believers in big groups and small ones, ones that are strong and ones that are going through hard times. Father, I pray for the family at Cornerstone Church over in Marion this morning. Pray for my friend and my brother in ministry, Matt, as he leads that congregation with his elders and staff. Father, I pray that you would bless Cornerstone Church today. I pray that there be revival at Cornerstone Church today, that people would turn their lives over to you, that hearts would be changed. Father, and that is, as we pray for one another across this city, you would unite not just the churches of Cedar Rapids, but the body of Christ and make us one even as you are one today. Father, we're asking a lot of stuff, but there's no one greater than our God, and you're sufficient for all these things. We're going to ask right now, Lord, as we go to your word, that in these next few minutes you would meet with us. Father, as we go to your word, that, that your spirit would move that he would guide us in truth, that he'd guard us from error, that he'd deliver us from distraction, that he'd help us to see Jesus. Oh God, may we see Jesus Christ clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus Christ only this morning in the preaching of your word. And Father, when we leave here in a little while, may we leave rejoicing, truly convinced more than ever before that there is no one higher than our God. 
There's no one greater than you, and may my life forever praise the glory of your name. For there is no one higher than you. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. We ask them for the glory of Jesus. And I would ask all those in the house who agree this morning to say with me, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. Again, good morning. want to take a moment as you're settling back in to dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. Um, we should probably have stopped and prayed for whoever's in charge of Children's Church today because there's a whole lot more kids than usual uh, all at once, but that's exciting stuff too. And as they're making their way out, I want to invite you to take your Bible out and turn in it with me. Hopefully God has done a work in your heart already this morning just to tune your heart to sing his praise. I want you to go to In the Word now with me to Mark chapter 8. So we kick off our summer months by continuing in our study of Mark's gospel as we continue to follow the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the story that Mark has recorded for us here of his life and ministry, looking at all, as always, not just as what Jesus did, but why he did it and what difference it makes for us. I want you to make your way to Mark chapter 8. As you're getting there, I want to remind you of one other thing. You've already been reminded that immediately after the service, I want you to join us in the commons to hang out for a while. Uh, just to enjoy some time together. But one other thing we're doing today that's new, I mentioned this to you last Sunday, and I want you to be aware of it this morning, because as much as we are seeking to direct you across the street, I told you last Sunday that one of the new things we're beginning this Sunday is just an, as an outreach, as an arm of our prayer ministry, is we're going to provide prayer partners at the end of the service today. And so as much as you may want to get across the street, if when the service ends today, if you need prayer for anything at all, Maybe something, you, it's really, it seems really small and really silly and you need prayer for it, doesn't matter. There's going to be some folks down here. If it's really big and, and weighty and you're like, nobody's going to be able to help me with this, well, God can. And we would be so privileged to pray with you about whatever's on your heart. If you hear something in the message you want to ask about or respond to, as we sing that final song, there's just going to be a handful of prayer partners down here and they're here for you. So, and, it, and, and, and we want you to take advantage of that. So I just want to remind you of that amidst many, many other things uh, that are happening here at Maranatha uh, today. With that, let's look at God's Word. And we're going to begin reading it in a moment. We're actually going to look at a fairly long passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at it in several different parts. But before we read any of it this morning, in order just to kind of set up where it is we're going, where it is I believe God wants us to look in this particular story, let me begin by pointing out that among many, many other things right now, that this is a time of year. This is the time of year when for college students, and some of you may be college students, some of you remember what it was like to be a college student, however long or ago or recent that may have been, but this is a time of year when for college students, if you think about it, you know this, where everything in life comes down to tests, right? Everything in life comes down to final exams. And if you are in that season, if you've recently been in that season, if you can think back 40 years to when you were in that season, you may well remember that exam time, end of the semester, end of the school year, and all that comes with it can be very, very stressful. In, in, in fact, there are moments, and I remember this from my own college days, where it feels like as finals week approaches, as those last exams are coming around, where it feels like your entire future hangs in the balance of how you do on a particular test and how that impacts your particular grade and, and how much money it means you're going to make in the future and all the rest. It all comes down to tests. Everything in life is all about tests. And, and I'm pretty sure that at some point during finals week, during test time, 
The following thought crosses every college student's mind. In one way or another, I know it did mine. And the thought is something like this. I cannot wait for the day, right? I cannot wait for the day when this isn't what my life is all about. <laughs> when my life, when the, the, the biggest things in my life are no longer term papers and tests. I can't wait till I never have to write another one. I can't wait till I never have to take another one. I cannot wait for the day to come when I no longer have to take tests. And then you graduate. And then you get a job. And about two months later, this thought crosses your mind. How I long for the days, right? <laughs> when everything in life simply came down to tests. When that's all I had to worry about because life is so much harder. It's also, I've noticed, it's also approximately the same time in life when you realize that having left college and moved into the working world, that your annual vacation days go from 125 to 10, right? <laughs> everything changes. And, and yet, for a time, it's all about the tests. And you know, the purpose of a test, as elementary, as simple as it may sound, the purpose of a test, we all know, at, at its best level, isn't just to, to make life hard, isn't just to make you feel miserable, isn't just to stress you out. No, ultimately, in its purest sense, the purpose of a test is to figure out what you've learned, Right? what you've learned, if you've learned, to expose whether or not you have learned. That is to say, tests are used to determine where, at least in the case of a college student, after 15 weeks of, of daily or weekly information and, and, and instruction, where you now are at the end of the semester on a spectrum that runs from somewhere from ignorant to informed. Where'd you land? What did you learn? That's what the test is all about. And the reason I bring it up is because that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's going on in this next section of Mark's gospel, in this next scene in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because what I want you to see before we even begin reading it is the following. That in the passage we're about to look at, we're going to look at it in three parts, there are three tests. There are three very distinct tests that are being given and as I hope you'll see by the time we're done, what they all seem to, to center around, what they all have in common, is that in one way or another, these tests are being used to determine or to expose whether or not those involved truly trusted God with their needs. Let me say that again. These three tests, the one thing they have in common is they're all being used to determine whether or not those involved have truly learned to trust God with their needs. And with that in mind, this is the first test. Let me tell you what the test is, and then we'll read the passage and, and see if we can put it together. The first test is in verses 1 through 9. And, and in the simplest terms, I tried to keep this as simple as possible. Nobody likes complicated tests, so let's keep them simple. The first one is this. Test number one in verses 1 through 9 is a test that deals with the question, the matter of what Jesus can do. That's what it's all about. Test number one is a test that concerns what Jesus Christ can do. Grab your Bible, follow along. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. This is what the Word of God says. It says, In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they've remained with me now three days, and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. 
And his disciples answered him, saying, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he, Jesus, was asking them, the disciples, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered those to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces, and about 4,000 people were there, and he, Jesus, then sent them away. Now stop me if you've heard this one before, right? This sound familiar to anybody at all? Because we have seen this almost very thing happen before, have we not? Who was here a couple of weeks ago? Does this sound familiar to anybody in the house this morning, this particular story? Well, it should, because it was just two chapters ago, just three or four weeks ago, as far as we are concerned in studying Mark's gospel, that we heard a very similar story. But I do want to to assure you that despite what some critics of the Bible say, this actually is a different event entirely. Some would say it's two tellings of the same story. I wholeheartedly disagree. This is something very different. Because for one thing, when Jesus fed the 5,000, this is the story I'm referring to back in Mark chapter 6, that was an event that happened in Galilee. This we are told, or we are led to believe, this different, this other mass feeding, the feeding of the 4,000, happens in the region of Decapolis. Mark chapter 6 was a miracle primarily done in and amongst Jewish people. This, in Mark chapter 8, is a miracle primarily done in and amongst Gentiles. Again, that time there were 5,000. This time there were 4,000. That time it was five loaves and two fish. This time it's seven loaves and it says a few small fish. And, and so there are two different stories, which actually, I believe, when you come to that conclusion, prompts a question. Why is it here? Why is this story here? And the reason I ask the question is because as I am seeking to point out, hopefully very clearly, we've seen this sort of thing before. We saw it just two chapters ago, a miraculous mass feeding of people who had come to listen to Jesus. And and the reason I I asked the question, or one of the reasons I asked the question of why in such close proximity specifically would Mark give us a story here that's so similar to one that he just told us, why would he do that, especially when there are so many other things he didn't tell us about Jesus' ministry that he could have? Other miracles we know nothing about. If you've read John's gospel, you know at the end, it says Mark conclu- or John concludes his gospel by saying, and if all the things Jesus did were written down, there wouldn't be books enough in the world to contain them. So he could have told us something else. Why does he almost repeat the exact same story? Wasn't one miraculous feeding enough? And the answer would seem apparently not. And I think I know the reason why. The reason why is that this one is a test. This miraculous feeding is a test. Because while the situation and many of the details are fairly similar, I want you to note, and I want to show you this in the story, the approach is different. Because if you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000 back in Mark chapter 6, you may recall that in Mark 6, that it was the disciples who came to Jesus late in the day saying, Jesus, the sun is going down, we are out of food, we don't have an answer, you better send the people away. We've got a problem and we can't solve it. In that story, the disciples came to Jesus. It's different here. Look at your Bible, verse 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd with nothing to eat, 
Jesus called his disciples, Mark 8, 1, and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And though Jesus, at least according to our translation, didn't phrase what he said here in the form of a question, it most definitely was one. A question was certainly implied. In fact, I think there were sort of two questions being implied here. At a practical level, the question Jesus is asking his disciples is, so guys, what do you think we should do? We've got a problem. What do you think we should do? But at a deeper level, he's asking a spiritual question. And this is the question that really matters. The question that really matters at a spiritual level is this. What have you learned? What have you learned since the last time we were in the very same situation? Look at verse 4 for their answer. And prepare to not be impressed, right? His disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Really, guys? Really? This is how you're going to respond to the test? But that's their answer. And you know, the fun thing to do at this point, the fun thing for preachers and students of the Bible to do is beat up on the disciples for a while, right? Because they're so thick-headed, because they're so dim-witted, because they can't put two and two together and see what Jesus is driving at here. And it's really, really fun to beat up on them in stories like this when we're studying the Bible until we realize something. I'm exactly like they are. Sorry, so are you. Even as believers, this most certainly is us. What do I mean? I mean by how often we do the very same thing. How often we display the very same attitude when we are confronted with personal needs, parenting dilemmas, crisis in our marriage, trouble in our workplace problems with the budget, and on and on and on it goes. What am I talking about? Here's what I'm talking about, and I want you to hear this, and I want you to remember this. I'm talking about problems, what the disciples are showing us and revealing, not just about themselves, but revealing about us. We're talking about situations where, listen, today's pressure, everybody say today's pressure, pressure. obscures yesterday's provision. Say yesterday's provision. These are situations where today's pressure, today's problem, the latest crisis, however big or small it may be, causes me to lose my mind and forget about what God has done before. Talking about times when we as believers, because these guys are, I mean, this is the inner circle, right? We know one of them is going to rebel, but 11 of them are going to change the world. So these are Jesus guys. And even as Jesus guys, even at this point, perhaps having walked with him day and night for two full years, they are failing to see what Jesus can do because they've forgotten what Jesus has done. They're failing to see what Jesus can do because they've forgotten what Jesus can done, has done. And again, here's what Jesus can do. Look at your Bible, verse 6. Verse 5, excuse me. He asked them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. If they, I mean, it's like, how do they not see this coming, right? But they don't. And so he directed the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and he gave thanks and broke them, and he started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. They had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. 
And he picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of broken pieces and about 4,000. Again, we would probably assume 4,000 men. There were probably many more. 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Incidentally, can I tell you something cool? Kind of free, but still cool about this. Remember in the feeding of the 5,000, it said when all was said and done and they picked up the leftover pieces, there were, what was left over? Anybody remember? 12 baskets full, okay? Now in that story, this is, this is just kind of fun, but I think it's also teachable. Because in that story, the word that Mark uses for baskets, 12 baskets left over means picnic baskets, all right? Picnic baskets. Here the word is different. It says there's seven basketfuls left over. And the word that Mark uses for baskets here are, are, are full-size wicker hampers, the kind that a whole grown man can get inside of, okay? In fact, one did once. If you go to Acts chapter 9, the, the same word is used about the apostle Paul when he's in Damascus and he's being hunted down because of the gospel for his life. And if you, if you remember this story, what did they do? They, let it, they put him in a basket and they let him down the city wall in the middle of the night to get away. Same word. Seven baskets of leftovers. Kind of a big deal. I, you may not be impressed. I am. I think this is really, really powerful stuff. So here's the answer to test number one. Or here's the point of test number one, the test concerning what Jesus can do. It's very, very simple. He can provide. Say that with me. He can provide. And, and often he does so in ways and means and quantities we can't even begin to imagine. What can Jesus do? Jesus can provide. But before we get to see whether or not the disciples passed the test, whether or not the disciples understood the test, because there's more to come as far as they're concerned, Mark interrupts with, with test number two. There's a second test in this story, and, and we need to take a look at it before we see what comes next. And it's in verses 10 through 13, and it's this. Test number one is a test of what Jesus can do. He can provide. Test number two, however, deals with what Jesus won't do. There's a test here concerning what Jesus won't do. It begins in verse 10, and it goes through verse 13. And I, again, I invite you to follow along in your Bible. It says that after verse 9, where he fed the 4,000 and sent them away, it says, Immediately he, Jesus, entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he embarked, again embarked, and went away to the other side. Now this is a test. Verse 11 says so. But if you pay close attention to verse 11, what you realize is that in this instance, the test giver changes. Okay, look in your Bible again at verse 11. It says that the Pharisees came out and they came, at the end of the verse it says, specifically to test him. And what we learn between the beginning of verse 11 and the end of verse 11 is that their motives in doing so were anything but sincere. All right, they had an agenda in mind. They came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Because you see, when, when Mark says that they were seeking a sign, when he says that's what they wanted, what we need to understand is, is that in this instance, what they were asking Jesus for was more than, than just, if we can put it this way, just another miracle, right? 
Because they'd seen Jesus do miracles before. They'd been present when miraculous things had happened. But in this instance, based on the word that they used in bringing this test to Jesus, they weren't looking for another case of blind eyes being opened, deaf ears being unstopped, lame people getting up and walking, children being delivered from demonic possession. That's a different word. No, no, what they wanted here, the word that, they, that, that Mark uses to describe what they wanted is, is they wanted something cataclysmic. They wanted a display in the skies, right? They wanted an explosion on the earth. They wanted a bat signal coming down from heaven, right? Saying, this is the man. He has God's approval. That's what they're looking for here. They want something like that. In other words, the message they are coming to Jesus with when he gets out of the boat and steps onto the shore is what you've already done isn't enough. What you've already done isn't enough. We need more in order to believe Are you there today? Before we talk about them, let's talk about us. Is that where you are today? And this may be just speaking to a slice of us, but it's a very, very important slice of us. As you wonder whether there really is any truth to this Jesus thing, to this church thing, to this Christianity thing, because you've heard some stories and it's got your interest. I mean, you came back, right? You're thinking about it. And you're processing it. And, and you wonder, maybe is this what I've really been looking for? Maybe is this really something? Jesus, is he someone that can speak to the deep? But here's, here's the thought that's run through your mind. And, and, and don't be ashamed by it because it's probably run through many of ours who have already crossed the line of faith as well. But you probably at some point may have thought something like this. But Lord, if you could just give me a sign, right? If you could just do something tangible, to, and I'm not saying he never will, but I'm saying sometimes this is what we want. We say, listen, it sounds really good. It sounds really meaningful. It sounds like it could really uh, do, do some great things in, in my life, but I'm not sure. And if God could just give me a sign to show me that he's real, well, then I'll believe. Then I'll believe. But there's a problem with that. Actually, there's two. The first problem with it is, is just a practical problem, and it's this. Faith that needs a sign to believe is going to need more signs to sustain. One is never enough, if that's what you have to have to believe. Because the next time you get in a crisis, the next time you get in a jam, it's going to be God. Another display in the skies, nothing, another, something under the rock, another you know, message slipped under the doors. I've got to have a sign. I'm just saying it's human nature. It's just the way we roll. So faith that needs a sign to believe is going to need more signs to be sustained. But at a deeper level, the problem with what the Pharisees are asking for here and, and, and when that, that sort of same question resonates in our heart is simply this. What Jesus won't do is Jesus won't perform, okay? That's what test number two is all about. Jesus will not perform. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus won't pander to unbelief. He won't pander to unbelief in order to make you follow him. Well, if I just do some magic, right, if I, if I just do something spectacular, then of course you'll follow. No, Jesus always did miracles for a reason. There was compassion. It was to relieve suffering. It was to be this in itself is enough. I don't need to do more. This in itself should speak to you. But Jesus will not perform in order to compel belief. And one of the reasons we know that is because what the Pharisees are asking Jesus here, give us something in the skies. Give us something on the earth. Make something blow up so we'll be really impressed, right? The problem with that is that if you think about it, if you know the New Testament, and if you don't, this is what, something you should know, 
is that's the very thing Satan said when he came to tempt Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. The Bible tells us that before Jesus began to publicly preach and teach, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and, and he fasted and Satan tempted him. Tempted him three times. And the third of those temptations, the story says he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, right? Downtown Jerusalem. Thousands of people can see. And he says, hey, Jesus, jump off. Because the word says that the angels will catch you. And when the angels catch you and you won't strike your foot against a stone, everybody will know you're the man, right? And what's Satan's thinking? No cross is necessary. If that's what you do, he's trying to get Jesus to play, to perform in order to compel belief. <laughs> Jesus was like, don't put God to the test. You shall not, it is written, Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Because Jesus wasn't running a traveling road show. Jesus wasn't a sideshow circus act. After all, remember, and, and if you don't remember, let me, let me remind you. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, the very first thing Mark tells us Jesus ever said, now it wasn't the first thing Jesus said, but the first thing Mark records for us at the beginning of his ministry is this. Mark 1.15, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel are this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it is enough. It is time. Repent and believe the gospel. That's my message, Jesus said, and it hasn't changed. Repent and believe the gospel. And so when verse 12 says, look at your Bible, that he sighed deeply in his spirit, that's, that's language that expresses grief. It expresses disappointment. There is an undercurrent of anger, righteous anger in Jesus' heart in responding to the, to the, to the Pharisees and hearing this, this, not just request, this demand, give us a sign. Because Jesus', Jesus message was this. Guys, everybody gets saved the same way. Everybody gets saved the same way. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And, we, and he may walk us through different circumstances in life to get there. And in some of our cases, yeah, he may do some pretty spectacular stuff, but it always comes down to faith. Because the, the problem, with, again, with wanting a sign is you're going to trust the sign. You're not supposed to trust the sign. You're supposed to trust the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, it's all about faith. He's saying, there's no need for me to perform. Why? Because Jesus has already done everything necessary to save you and to save me. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose from the dead. He said, it is finished. And that's all it takes to be saved is faith in that. And the question is simply, and, and it's what Jesus wanted the Pharisees to hear, and it's what he wants some of us this morning to hear as well, is simply this, do you, will you believe? Is what Jesus has done enough? He says it is. Have you settled that in your heart this morning as well? And then what Jesus did is he did what Jesus often did. He walked away. Left them to ponder that. Not going to get a sign. Not going to get a vision. I'm just going to leave you with a question. You came to test me. I'm now putting you to the test, right? I won't perform. I came to seek and to save. And so in verse 13, it says, Jesus left them. He again got back in the boat. He and the disciples sailed to the other side. Why? Because Jesus had one more test to give. There's one more test in this story. 
Test number one is a test of what Jesus can do. Jesus can provide. Test number two is a test that proves what Jesus won't do. Jesus won't perform. The third and final test in verses 14 through 21 is a test that concerns or reveals to us, third and finally, what Jesus will do. What Jesus will do. Grab your Bible. As I read from 14 down through 21, it's our last portion of the, the passage this morning. It says that after they'd gotten in the boat, verse 13, that they, the 12, the disciples, had forgotten to take bread. We're back to bread, right? And, he did, and they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he, Jesus, was giving orders to them, to the disciples, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they, the disciples, began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? Do you not remember how when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces were picked up? And they said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he, Jesus, was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Now think about that. Think about what we're being told here. They'd already seen Jesus feed 5,000. I told you more like 25,000. They'd already seen him feed the 5,000 from five loaves of bread and two fish. They had just seen him feed the 4,000 from seven loaves of bread and a few fish. Now they're sitting in a boat arguing about a box of donuts with each other, right? There's not enough to go around. What are we going to do? Verse 16, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. They did what Christians historically have done with small problems. They formed a committee and made it bigger. <laughs> what are we going to do? I mean, just look at the language of verse 16. You get the sense that the 12 are sitting around the boat and they've got their heads in their hands and, and, and they're, they're all worked up. And Whose fault is there's no bread? And there's only a loaf of bread. I mean, Seriously, guys? This is what you're arguing about. This is what you're stressed out over. Because what were they afraid of? Afraid of this. God's going to leave us hanging. Jesus won't come through. He won't supply our need. To which Jesus, in the original Greek, said, really, bros? <laughs> no, what he actually did was something far more serious. Beginning in verse 17, again through verse 21, he fires off eight questions without coming up for air. Eight questions at them in a row. And these eight questions, make no mistake, they were designed, and this is Jesus speaking the truth in love. He fires off eight questions in a row that were designed to expose the spiritual dullness of their hearts. Look at what he said. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have hardened hearts? Having eyes don't you see? Having ears don't you hear? Don't you remember about the five loaves and the 5,000? Don't you remember about the 4,000 and the seven loaves? And don't you guys, verse 21, don't you yet 
understand. In other words, what Jesus was doing, now listen, what Jesus is doing here is what he does with all his people, and he'll do it in our lives till the day he calls us home. What Jesus was doing, what Jesus will do is he was pressing them. He was pressing them to trust him more. And that's what Jesus will do in your life and in my life. He will press you. He will press me. Sometimes through crisis, sometimes through questions, sometimes in other ways. He's got his own unique ways, and we shouldn't limit him to the ways he can do that. But that's what Jesus will do. He will press us to trust him more, more pointedly, more specifically. And I really want you to hear this because I think it's so incredibly important for us still today. He is pressing them to recall yesterday's provision so that they'll trust him with today's needs. He's pressing them, let me say that again, to to remember yesterday's provision so that they'll trust him with today's needs. And that's where this whole business about leaven in verse 15 comes in. Seems kind of out of place, okay? But, But if you look at your Bible, see they, it says in verse 14, they realize they've forgotten to take bread. They don't know what to do about it. And, and they're talking about literal bread. They got, we got one loaf of bread between us. And, and in walks Jesus into the conversation. And he says the following. It says he began giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the, and the yeast or the leaven of Herod. What's he talking about? Well, well, they're thinking material. Of course, Jesus is thinking spiritual, right? But he's doing it to speak into the problem and all that it represents in the lives of believers. He's speaking into it. And when he says, watch out for the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, yeast, we all know it's, a, it's an ingredient. You put it into bread when you're baking it. And it takes, I've done it a couple times, only it's a little bit. And it goes a really, really long way. And Jesus is saying, when he says, watch out for the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, the Bible actually tells us in another place what that was. Luke 12, 1 says very specifically, the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. Watch out for hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? Putting on a front on Sunday, living a life of faithless disobedience all week long. That's what the Pharisees did. Watch out for hypocrisy. Watch out for putting on a front among the people and living a life of rebellion at worst, indifference at best, detached from the life of the Spirit all week long. He says, watch out for that. Because guys, I see that's where you're going here. And he says, but not only that, watch out for the leaven of Herod, of the Herodians. Now, the Bible doesn't give us as quite as clear a verse, but, but based on, to say what that is, to define it for us, but based on what we know about King Herod and, and his type, I, I think if we were to attach a word to it, if the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy, the leaven of Herod is worldliness worldliness, because if you study the life of Herod, even just what's found in the Bible, he was all, he and his type, they're all about the acquisition of power, the acquisition of wealth, and the, and, and the experience of fleshly indulgence. Live for today, right? Live for me. Get it while you can, because it won't last long. And the reason Jesus, is they're arguing about a loaf of bread, because it represents a failure to trust God for provision. As they're arguing, Jesus says, guys, I see what's really going on here, and you need to pay attention, that you don't drift into hypocrisy, that you don't drift into worldliness, because like yeast, both of those things start really, really small. They grow very, very silently, but one day they take over. They take over your mind, your body, your heart, Everything. And when we let hypocrisy in, we front on Sunday and we play all week. And when we let worldliness in, 
We, we worship on Sunday, but we, we pursue, our, we, you know, we praise God's kingdom Sunday. We pursue my kingdom all week long. Jesus said, that's going to do a whole lot of bad stuff, but the worst is it's going to choke out faith. Abiding faith. Not going to steal away your salvation, but it's going to make shipwreck of your life. He said, watch out, guys. Look at where you're drifting. And, and here what Jesus does is he sees this creeping into the lives of his disciples. They've seen the 5,000. They've seen the 4,000. They've got a loaf of bread, and they're losing their minds over it. And, and, and Jesus says, he, I see this creeping in. And, and what does Jesus know? He's like, guys, you're the ones who, after I go, you're the ones who are going to take this gospel to the whole world. We can't play this game. You can't let this stuff in. Watch out for it. It'll destroy you. We know that with one of them it did, right? We know it with Judas. This is exactly his story. So what does Jesus do? Because so much is at stake, he begins to press them and press them hard in those eight questions to remember. And man, is this a message I need to hear? I don't know about you. It's one for me. But remember, I've been faithful. I've been faithful. I've been faithful. I've always provided. I've always been there He's pressing them to remember what he'd already done so that in the moment they would trust him even more. And here's the bottom line message. If you know Jesus, he'll do that for you because he loves you. Because he knows without faith it's impossible to please God. And he wants to grow your faith. What will Jesus do? He'll press us. He'll press us to trust him more. I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 103. You can leave Mark. We're not coming back to him this morning. You know, when we as believers talk about spiritual disciplines, it's kind of the language of the church, things that we do, practical things we do to nurture our faith. If I say spiritual disciplines, my hunch is, I'm not going to take a quiz, but my hunch is what comes to your mind are things like Bible reading, right? Prayer, corporate worship, confession of sin. These are the things that the scriptures tell us are are spiritual disciplines, practices that ought to be in a believer's life if they're serious about growing. But you know, one of the spiritual disciplines that we don't, I know I don't often think of, but I should think of it as a spiritual discipline, and I want to set before you that you should too, is remembering. There's a spiritual discipline of remembrance. And what I mean by that is this, is taking time in your busy life to pause and consciously, deliberately remember what has God done for me in the past. When did he meet my need? When did he walk with me? How did he give me strength when life was falling apart? How did he just meet me even in a good place and just remind me that he loves me and blessed me in a way I didn't deserve? It doesn't have to be through tragedy and trial. It can be through really good stuff too, but what has God done for you? It's a spiritual discipline calling to mind God's faithfulness in the past. Now, we may not think of that as a spiritual discipline, but if you read the Old Testament, it's everywhere. It's in the Psalms, it's in the narratives, it's in the prophecies, all of this stuff about remembrance. Over and over again, the people of God are called to remember the Lord, to remember his law, to remember the miracles, to remember, that's where we started this morning, talking about Moses and the Red Sea. They were remembering that all the time. Remember what God has done for you, the victories, the triumphs, the provision, the intervention. And and what the Old Testament record also shows is that whenever they started to forget, they got in all kinds of trouble all the time, That, that they begin to make bad decisions when they didn't remember the Lord, that they got relationally divided when they didn't remember the Lord. That they got into immorality and, 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 and uh, idolatry 
when they failed to remember the Lord. And what the record also shows is that every time it turned around, it turned around because somebody started to remember. We found the word of the Lord and we began to read it and remember it once again. It's all over the Old Testament. The turnaround always began when somebody remembered. And that's not just an Old Testament revelation, it's a New Testament truth. Romans 15.4, you need to turn there, but this is what it says. Romans 15.4 says this, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Isn't that what we need when life is hard? Hope. Isn't that what we need when life isn't hard? Hope. And he says, when we remember what God has done, we persevere, and the Scriptures encourage us, and we have hope. And my point is simply this, that in the same way that all those Old Testament stories were there for the disciples' sake and for ours, but they were there in this, point for the, in this case for the disciples, this story is here for you and me. This story is here for you and me, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have, say it with me, what? Hope. We might have hope in whatever season of life we're in. Hope. And that's why the big idea of today's message, but before I give it to you, I'm going to tell you we're not done with the big idea, okay? I need five more minutes after I give you the big idea, all right? So if I, if I see you close your Bible, I'm going to call you out, right? <laughs> the big idea is this. We go deeper with Jesus when we remember what he's done. You can switch that around. When we remember what he's done, we go deeper with Jesus. See, I want to grow in my walk with the Lord. I want, to, I want to love Jesus more. I want to walk more faithfully with him. Remember what he's done. That's it? Yep, remember what he's done. Isn't that what we do every other Sunday in communion? We remember what he did because it matters so much. We go deeper with Jesus when we remember what he's done. That is the message that was delivered through these three tests. It's also the message of Psalm 103. It's also the message of Psalm 103. And here's why I have you in Psalm 103. Because I really believe, I know, I know in my own life, that it's one thing to write all this stuff down in my notebook, close it up, and go home. Right? Because there's all kinds of other things to do. And, and it's quite another to, to allow it to, to settle. Quite another to allow it to take root and to act on it before we forget so I want to direct you just to the, the words of, of David in Psalm 103, and then I'm going to invite you just in a moment, for a moment, to do whatever business, and I'll help you with this, but whatever business you might need to do in your heart with the Lord. Psalm 103 begins this way, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, here it comes, and forget none of his benefits. What benefits? Well, he's the one who pardons your iniquities. He's the one who heals your diseases. He's the one who redeems your life from the pit. He's the one who doesn't just bring you up to sea level. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He is the one who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now, the rest of Psalm 103 is awesome, and you want to read it sometime because it's so good in terms of worship. But right there, that there is enough. Bless the Lord and don't forget what he's done. Bless the Lord, don't forget what he's done. Bless the Lord, don't forget what he's done. What has he done for you? What has he done for you? 
What I want to do is just, we're going to sing in a moment. I want the worship team just to come get ready to lead us in a final song of worship. So guys, if you want to come up and sort of get situated. But the rest of us, I want you to keep your Bible open in front of you and look at these verses. Look at them again. Just allow your eyes to pass over what David says there. And then as we go to prayer, I want to invite you as you're able to stand. If you prefer to sit, that's fine. But let's go ahead and stand to our feet right now. Let's stand together. And I'm going to pray for us, but I'm not going to pray for us until I've given you the chance to pray to him. And whether you want to bow your head and close your eyes, whether you want to kneel down, whatever it is you want to do, but here's what I want to invite you, what I urge you to do with whatever God is doing in your heart this morning. It's not about what I've said, it's about what God is speaking to your heart. And as you think about what David says here, bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits, let me ask you, what has God done for you? Think about your life. Where has he been faithful? Big stuff, little stuff, 10-year-ago stuff, yesterday stuff, this morning stuff. And, and when David says this, it wasn't so we'd read pretty poetry. He actually wanted us to do this. So I'm going to invite you right where you are. And, and we'll just, if you need a, a help, a prompt to get started, I'm going to have Jeff just right now throw it up on the screen. But simply this, Lord, I praise you for meeting my need. I praise you for meeting my need for. I praise you for meeting my needs when. Your story is different than everybody else's. God works uniquely in each of our lives. What I'm going to do is just give you 60 seconds, and you can pray quietly or you can pray out loud. You can stand up or you can kneel down. You can sit whatever you want to do. It's not about what the person next to you is doing. It's about what God's doing in your heart right now. I'm going to give you 60, 90 seconds. Think for a moment, when has God been faithful in my life? And then turn that. Turn that as we sometimes sing. Turn that blessing into praise. And simply say to the Lord, again, silently or aloud, right where you are, Lord, I praise you for meeting my need. And when you're done with that one, think of another one. And when you remember that one, think of another one. Because I bet he's blessed you more than once. That's all I need to say. You know what God has done for you. Take a moment think about it, and then just tell it to him in prayer right where you are, and then I'll prompt us to take another step. Let's pray. As we've said just throughout the message this morning, we remember yesterday's provision so that we can trust him with today's needs. And the reason the disciples were so freaked out is because they were letting today's pressure obscure yesterday's provision. Hopefully in your heart you've had a moment now here to consciously count, recount some of the ways God has blessed and provided with you. Now, here's the question, what's going on today? I think it doesn't matter what it is, it can be big or small. But what's the burden? What's the need? What's the question? What's the relationship and, and if you've settled in your heart, oh yeah, yeah, he has been faithful. Oh yeah, he, he did some good stuff for me. Well then here's how I'd invite you to pray now. We'll just throw this up on the screen so you can have it to help you if you need. And I'll just give you a 60, 90 more seconds. After you've praised him for the need, now it's, Lord, I believe that I can trust you with. Maybe you have to say, Lord, I want to believe that I can trust you with. But at some point you have to choose. Belief is a choice. I believe that I can trust you with. I believe that I can trust you for. I believe that I can trust you 
as? What's that thing? Remember, the disciples were arguing over a loaf of bread, and Jesus saw something so serious there that he went after it. Your deal may seem like a loaf of bread compared to what's going on in other people's lives, but it matters to him because it's about the condition of your heart. Got a minute, a minute and a half, again, quietly or aloud. Maybe if you're here with your spouse or family and you just need to pray together about something, you can just turn to them and just, and just, Lord, I believe I can trust you with. Again, that's all you need from me. You and the Lord and the Spirit can take you from here. What do you need to, to trust him with? Put in his hands today. Do it right now. Let me tell you something. I, in the moment, I can't give you the chapter and verse for it, but I do know this, that whatever you just told God, he cares about more than you do. Whatever you just told God about, he, he knows how it's all going to work out because he planned it. He's in charge of it. And, and whatever happens, he's going to love you through it. And I want to plead with you, and I urge you to plead with me to as we walk out these doors in three or four minutes to, to not forget whatever it is you've settled before the Lord here today. The disciples, look how quickly they forgot. We're susceptible to the same. Get back in the word. Keep laying it before him so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, you might maintain hope. Your faith might grow. Father, thank you that you love every person in this room far beyond anything we can imagine. We know that because Jesus went to the cross. Father, thank you that you care about the needs in our lives, the burdens that we carry, that you have solutions and hope to them all. Thank you that you provide. Thank you that you won't perform. Thank you that you will press us because you love us. Father, take the things of truth, not just that I have spoken here today, but that even that you've dealt with in our own hearts and seal them deeply in, the, in, in our memory. And, and Lord, let all the rest go away so that we leave just savoring and looking to Jesus only, whom we not only love, but who loved us even to death. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.